You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show, Wednesday the 5th of January. It feels more like winter today here in TW11. It is bright and cold. Racing in the United States is feeling an icy blast this morning. First of all, the New York Racing Association, Naira, has updated its statement of charges against the most recognisable trainer in the United States, Bob Baffert, ahead of his disciplinary hearing. According to the Blood Horse, that includes two further violations reported by the California Horse Racing Board and an allegation that a CHRB investigation found a medication cabinet with 25 improperly labelled medications. Baffert, the trainer, of course, of Medina Spirit, the horse first passed the post in the Kentucky Derby, subsequently tested positive and just before Christmas died in tragic circumstances. An extraordinary development reported by the Los Angeles Times and their special contributor John Cherwa overnight was that Dr. Jeff Blair, the equine medical director of the California Horse Racing Board, has had his veterinary license temporarily suspended on Monday by the State Veterinary Medical Board so that he can have no involvement in the necropsy of horses that have incurred sudden death, the most high profile of those of course being Medina Spirit. So this is a an extraordinarily developing story and one that I'll be concentrating on in some depth in tomorrow's podcast. A close to home and understandable concern as we reach the sharp end of the government's gambling review. The Betting and Gaming Council's Michael Duggar will be joining me toward the end of this edition. It's not all doom and gloom, as you'll be hearing later in the show from Andy Edwards, the man who owns one of the most exciting young steeplechasers in Europe at the moment, Lom Presse, who was so impressive at Cheltenham at the weekend. And it's a great story of patience and perseverance as to how this horse has begun to fulfil his real potential. But everything we do in the sport at the moment, of course, is subject to the vagaries of the pandemic. In a few moments' time, you'll be hearing from Tim Husbands, the chief executive of Leopardstown Racecourse. They had to go behind closed doors at Christmas. Could that be the same scenario at the Dublin Racing Festival? Husbands hopes not. Here in Great Britain, in accordance with government guidelines, the weighing room area regulations have been tightened once again. And that followed reports that a valet had tested positive for COVID, which gave significant cause for concern. One or two unconfirmed reports that some jockeys had tested positive as well, though the mass lateral flow testing has yet to come in force because of the shortage of lateral flow kits. I asked the BHA whether there was any threat to the viability of horse racing. They say they're not really in that ballpark at the moment, and it was inevitable that there would be some positives. It would be pretty ridiculous, given the state of the, the nation as a whole, if they weren't getting positives in the racing community. But not aware of any indications that the viability of the sport as a whole is at risk at the moment. They say it's a developing situation. They continue to urge everyone in the industry to follow protocols and be cautious. And it is also worth pointing out that the areas in which jockeys and valets are uh, are operating are highly controlled green zones and not anyone can just wander in and out. I've spoken to David Bass, who's the Jump Jockeys president of the PJA, and to, to Dale Gibson. They both reiterate the same messages, that, that Jerry Hill and his team at the BHA are doing a great job trying to keep everyone apart, only being at the racecourse when it's strictly necessary. Once you've ridden, go home, 
making sure people are socially distanced and sort of going back to a situation that we were in a few months ago with, with real vigilance. As far as lateral flow tests are concerned, the availability of those does seem to be on the horizon. But what will happen when everybody is mandated to take lateral flow tests? Will there be a, a significant jockey shortage then, I wonder, with so many people walking around apparently asymptomatic? That is pure speculation, uh, Jane Mangan. But good news that the authority at this stage feels that it is premature to suggest that there is a major threat to the immediate viability of the sport. That is good news. I can only really speak from an Irish perspective. Ireland's weigh room never really got back to normality because we understood we cannot hold a race meeting without jockeys and without uh, the people who would be concerned. So we never really resumed normality over here. And that's a good thing, particularly in the height of Omicron. And I suppose it's more of a relief to hear that the BHA aren't overly concerned. They make a valid point. If you were not getting positive test results, then you would automatically think people are being dishonest. Hopefully the situation improves, but right now we're in the thick of it. So we all proceed with caution. I mentioned Leopardstown. Uh, Tim Husbands is the chief executive of, of Leopardstown. And um, Tim, you're coming off the back of a, a behind-closed-doors situation over, over Christmas time and sort of got me and a few people thinking, well, hang on a minute, could we be in that nightmare situation where we have to go behind closed doors at the DRF in a few weeks' time? Where, what are you thinking at the moment? I'd like to think that that uh, that moment there was a moment in time it was more of a, a restricted number of people that we could have in as a result of uh, the number of staff that we had available to us at the time in order to be able to deliver uh, that scenario that was uh, focused on public health and public safety uh, and I would think that as we move through to Dublin Racing Festival which is still a few weeks away that the uh, public health position will have changed, will have improved, as a lot of the experts are predicting. But also that our staffing uh, will no doubt be at uh, a much fuller complement at that stage. So I'm very confident that we'll be able to deliver uh, the Dublin Racing Festival with uh, 5,000 public there. I mean, is it fair to say that it was a, a staffing issue that really drove the decision over Christmas rather than, rather than a, an, an issue of, of, of public health? I think it was a local issue, uh, but that, that's a combination of both the staffing challenges that we had, thus and our third parties, but also it was a national developing situation. We went from a position on the, on the Wednesday of having about 7,000 uh, cases to 11,500 cases by the time Christmas Eve came. Uh, and particularly in Dublin and South Dublin, it was a particular focus of those increased number of cases so i think it was a an attempt by us to obviously protect the integrity of horse racing and to do what was right at the situation now you've got a little bit more advanced warning of the of the sort of nature of, of omicron and, and and this variant and the way that it, it rampages have you got contingencies in place should you have a large number of your own permanent and or casual staff go down Yes, I mean, the, the situation arose uh, around Christmas Eve, so you can imagine the challenges of trying to uh, put Plan B into place at that stage. But no, we, we have contingency plans in place that will hopefully allow us to deliver a fantastic festival of national hunt racing. With, with hopefully a full 5,000 there? I would like to think so, yes. Well, Jane, that was uh, Tim Husband's chief executive of Leopardstown Racecourse. I mean, it, it's good to hear that he's, he's optimistic, but it, it's not a certainty that, that they'll get a, a crowd in for the Dublin Racing Festival, even if it's likely. You must consider the Leopardstown Christmas situation was 
isolated. You know, Limerick enjoyed a crowd of 5,000 people and it went off quite well. I didn't hear any negatives from that. And, you know, there's been crowds at other race meetings throughout the country since then. So with respect to the situation regarding staff in Leopardstown, that was extreme. A lot of people thought that maybe they should have got help from other HRI tracks like Navin and the Curra. They decided to take the decision as Tim has already outlined. But I hope going to the DRF, everybody's extra careful because it's a flagship meeting for Ireland. Standing there when Galvin mowed down Tar, I could imagine the, the crowd and the reaction and the roar that would have ensued. So I hope we can get that in February. I know hope is one word and reality is another. But God, for racing fans to miss Christmas was a disaster. Well, whoever is or isn't allowed to attend the Dublin Racing Festival, it seems certain that Frodon will be there. That was his declared target, according to his owner, Paul Vogt, and trainer Paul Nichols, yesterday after they decided not to enter the horse for any of the big chases at Cheltenham, entries for which were revealed uh, 24 hours or so ago. Uh, Jane, it'd be nice to think that, that Frodon going to the Dublin Racing Festival could, could have a, a little extra significance. Well, I think Paul Nichols is very good at targeting races that his horses can win. And they have outlined that they don't think he can win the Gold Cup. They don't think he can win the Ryanair Chase because it's a little bit short for him. And if you ask yourself, what is really going to turn up in the Irish Gold Cup? Delta Work is going straight there. Akutar probably won't go there. Manila Indo looks like he's on a retrieval mission. You know, you start going down through these horses. Mount Ida's entered in the Gold Cup. She's interesting. Run Wild Fred is very interesting. Album Photo's not going to go there. So I think it's, I think it's a smart move. The Dublin Racing Festival is an extremely lucrative meeting. The Irish Gold Cup is a coveted race. Paul Nichols, I think, is onto something. Looking at those Cheltenham entries, so the the big three chases uh, entries came out yesterday. The Gold Cup, the Ryanair, the the um, the Queen Mother Champion Chase. Was there anything that hit you between the eyeballs? Were there any surprises apart from Frodon's absence? I did have to laugh when I saw Alaho in the Champion Chase, the Ryanair Chase and the Gold Cup. I was like, that's Willie Mullins at his finest. I know he likes to keep his options open, but um, that was that made me laugh. Uh, Ahoy, Ahoy Senor in the Gold Cup did um, raise an eyebrow. I thought that was ambitious, but no harm in giving him an entry. Carefully selected as well in the Gold Cup. We haven't seen him since he unseated Patrick Mullins as warm or a favourite in the National Hunt Chase last year. He's in there. We haven't seen him yet this year. Champ is in the Gold Cup. Will he go to the World Hurdle or the Gold Cup? That is a question. Um, And what? 16 of the 30 entries are Irish. So no major surprises, but a couple of interesting ones. I also noted that Put the Kettle On is in the Ryanair chase as well as the champion chase. Having seen her run at Fairy House last week, I think she doesn't look the same mare. So we we, we must remind ourselves she's the only mare to win the champion chase. She deserves our respect. Um, it's a it's a pity we haven't seen her properly this year. Ruby Walsh, your RTE colleague, has said that album photo is not bust yet and has every chance of emulating Corto Star. I put it to you, Jane, that he is clutching at straws. I, I wasn't at all impressed with Tremor, but somebody will have to tell me something I didn't see. Ruby might be commenting on the fact that the Gold Cup picture doesn't look as strong as it did maybe two months ago after Christmas, after the King George, after a number of big names bubbles burst so i i do think it could happen uh his jumping was adequate at at, at tremor he was landing awkwardly and steep at a couple and it wasn't as fluent as you would hope for a race that looked like it was a piece of work for him yeah it, it, it's it's clutching at straws because we see so little of him 
But after Galvin burst the Apple tire bubble, I still think Apple tire is the horse they all have to beat. Manila Indo doesn't look the same horse. I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility. Well, who knows? Uh, come this time next year, one of the entries in any one of those races could easily be Lompresse, who's one of the most exciting, if not the most exciting, British-based novice chaser at the moment. He won by 10 lengths from the Glancing Queen at Cheltenham, conceding the gender allowance last weekend. He runs in the colours of DFA Racing and was sourced and is still co-owned by Andy Edwards, who's who's with me now. Andy, oh, first of all, what kind of pleasure is this horse giving you uh, over the last few weeks? Uh, it's just been amazing. It's an amazing journey to own any horse, but this boy, from where I bought him, how I bought him, what a bit of a mess he was when I bought him, and this two and a half journey to get to here, it might seem to everyone else that he suddenly exploded on the scene, but there's been a lot of time and patience put into this lad, and it's it's just incredible and very emotional. Uh, am I right in thinking that that's part of the reason that you bought him, that you, you deliberately go out of your way to source horses that are projects, if you like? Yes, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what I do. Um, someone said to me in France, they smiled and winked and said, Andy, you go around buying lost souls. And I just smiled and I said, well, yeah, some of them need saving from certain people and uh, giving the space and time to uh, be the best they can. And that's what I'm trying to achieve is with any horse is allow it to be the best it can at whatever level that is and enjoy itself. Okay, so, so give, me, give me the detail then. So he'd had two runs for um, Monsieur Serrault in France and then didn't reappear again for 773 days until making his debut for you when winning at Chepstow for, for Venetia. So what, what happened? How did you find him and what did you do with him and what nick was he in when you got him? Right, well, uh, Felix de Giles out in France, um, he gave me a ring and he said, Andy, I know you're really patient. I've just sat on a really nice horse, um, but it's just done a leg. Um, and he said, if you can, try and buy it. Um, so he gave me the number of the uh, the owner and um, um, I live in France. Um, and... Um, so I went about buying him, which took two or three months. It was a bit of a struggle um, to get him, but I, I, I managed to uh, managed to get him for a reasonable price. Although some might say it was a lot of money, given that he he had a leg injury. And then um, and then Robert Walford came over. I asked Robert to come over in his uh, lorry and pick him up for me. And he took him back, and Robert Louise took care of him down in Dorset really lovely um sort of environment for him there and really took care of him and then um and then i decided that um i'd take him up to uh, venetia's and we would go down the time and patience route yet again and just give him a couple of runs um over hurdles always knowing that he was going to be a, a good chaser and he was it a leap of the imagination to think that he could after a good debut over hurdles at Chepstow, admittedly, scale quite the heights he has over fences? Not in my mind. And a lot of people who know me in racing know that I'm not saying that flippantly. Venetia and I always knew he was going to be a very good chaser. Um, because of the pace he shows at home sometimes, the, the only 
concern we had was getting the trip right for him um, to start off with. But what he did at Chepstow in April um, over hurdles, um, I expected um, the Sandown race was to get a two and a half mile run into him and a bit more experience before he went away for the summer. And we were thrilled with his six in such a, such a sort of competitive handicap on the very quick ground. Um, and we went to Exeter this year, um, full of hope and, uh, but more expectation really. Uh, the graduation chase was always um, on the cards and the dipper in terms of the plan was a week too early really for us but um, something that we had in mind from the beginning of the season the graduation chase followed by the dipper and then we would see what happens now the obvious race from the festival is the race over the same sort of distance two and a half miles the turner novices chase would he get any other entries uh probably probably i can't say exactly what entries but it would depend on the ground. If the, if, I know everyone wants to know where he's going next. That's what Lee Mutter said, asked me um, in the winner's enclosure at Cheltenham. And I said, I'm going to the bar and you're welcome to follow me, was my answer. Um, obviously, we're trying to enjoy the moment. We're going to see how he comes out of this, this race. Obviously, he's had three races quite quickly. Uh, when we go to the festival, the race that he goes for will be ground dependent. And it, so we will probably give ourselves a couple of options. Well, time now to revisit the gambling review, which I think is coming down to the sharp end. The government announced the uh, white paper is set to be published in the spring. We're now on another uh, minister responsible for gambling, uh, Chris Philp MP, who might be uh, philosophically slightly differently placed to his predecessor, John Whittingdale, the chief executive of the betting and gaming councillors, Michael Duggar, who's taken a print in the Daily Telegraph, the headline, Boris Johnson must not curb personal freedom to satisfy gambling prohibitionists. Uh, Michael, how worried are you about um, the future for the gambling industry with just a couple of months before we actually have a clear idea as to what the government's proposing? I think there is a lot at stake for um, for our industry. And, uh, and by that, really, I'm talking about the people in the industry. So BGC members... Our companies alone support the jobs of nearly 120,000 um, people. Um, this is an industry that pays four and a half billion pounds in tax. So the Chancellor has got skin in the game here as well. But as well as there being a lot at stake, I do think there's an opportunity as well for the industry. And, and we very much try to frame things around this is a once in a generation opportunity to look at how we can further raise standards. Uh, around safer gambling. We've been trying to do that in the last couple of years with the creation of the BGC. And we think that the review and the white paper is a golden opportunity to make uh, really significant further progress as well. Let's get down to business as regards horse racing specifically, because that, that's what this, this show is all about. Uh, you say in your, your article, there's a, there's a real danger that, that racing could be taken off terrestrial television um, because the prohibitionists want gambling advertising banned. In racing, we've always been led to believe that this would be ring-fenced. Is is that belief fanciful? 
I think racing does need to appreciate that it has got a lot at stake here as well. And the people who are the anti-gambling prohibitionists, you know, it is a, a small uh, number of parliamentarians, you know, a handful of MPs, you know, some Lib Dems and a, and a few bishops in their House of Lords. But those prohibitionists are calling for a complete ban on all advertising and sponsorship, take away the advertising and sponsorship uh, of racing. And, and my view is that how on earth could you sustain uh, racing on terrestrial television? I don't think you could. And I'm sure and I hope that racing and broadcasters are making those, uh, those arguments discreetly and powerfully to the government. There's certainly a willingness from the leadership of the BHA there. I just hope that this is something that all of the sport of racing can can embrace and to realise, you know, things are things are we are at the business end of things and, and the next few weeks are gonna be absolutely critical. I'll come to the specifics of safer gambling in a moment, Michael. But let's first of all talk about affordability checks. There are already enhanced safety checks coming in, much to the dismay of an awful lot of, of responsible punters. There's every chance that restrictions will be will be tightened in this regard, and people complaining well that the, the, the gambling companies don't want winners on one hand and don't want losers on the other hand as they bid to get you know, ahead of the of, of the government on this. Are you now presenting a clear message in this respect? What we're saying to the government is, look, this is actually really tricky stuff, and how you do this. Uh, is really key um, because you know you could get this wrong so it's very very clear from repeated surveys and from you know the operators talking to our own customers that um, you've got to make sure that you kind of you have as many checks as possible but for as many uh, players as possible who are uh, betting in a safe and responsible way that there isn't uh, too much friction, um, that we're not spoiling uh, their enjoyment, that they don't feel that uh, their personal choice and freedom of how they choose to spend the money that they've earned and paid their taxes on um, is is not being disrupted too much. But and the key really is at, at, at what point, the moment you ask people for documentation, to the moment you start to say, right, I want to see your bank statement and your pay slip, you know, Ponsors will just go. Uh, Michael, let's talk about some of the sort of finer uh, ethical points that you you raised in your in your Telegraph piece. You rail against comparisons with with tobacco and drugs, but isn't the truth of it that the gambling industry want to see problem gamblers in some sort of separate ghetto? whilst not realising their own responsibilities. Isn't it naive to believe that you can remove all so-said problem gamblers and then you'll have this utopian industry where everyone bets responsibly? Isn't the onus on the betting companies to present their product in such a way that it reduces, insofar as possible, the likelihood of addiction, which can happen to anybody at any time from any socioeconomic background? And, and I think they do. Um, uh, and you're right to say, you know, this is this this could happen to anyone. I think I've made the point deliberately about um, the comparisons with tobacco and illegal drugs. If you are an anti-gambling prohibitionist, if you feel people want to ban stuff, just if you just hate gambling, you think it's 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 wrong. There is a difference here. They the reason why I mentioned tobacco and drugs because their view is that gambling is uh, intrinsically and universally harmful 
to all and therefore you need uh, arbitrary um, restrictions that apply to everyone. What we're saying is, and this is borne out by the evidence, problem gambling, according to the, the regulator, the Gambling Commission, uh, one is actually falling. That's, you know, touch wood. That is good news and I think is a sign of the progress that we've made in very recent times. But it is around 0.3%. So for the overwhelming majority of people, you know, betting is something that they do perfectly responsibly and safely. You know, if you, if you smoke cigarettes, you know, you're not going to find 99.7% of people, you know, are fine with it and only 3%, 0.3% get cancer. You know, it is different. And that's why I think we need to use uh, the review to really focus in on those that do have a problem uh, so we focus in on problem gamblers but also those that are potentially at risk um, and I think by having a risk-based approach to recognize that for the overall majority this is something that they just do and it's part of their culture and their enjoyment um, of sport and it's their personal choice and freedom um, how can we uh, whether the regulated the government of the industry put measures in place that provide better protections for problem gamblers and those at risk without spoiling the enjoyment of the overwhelming majority uh, for whom this is, you know, this is their legitimate pastime. Don't forget the anti-gambling campaigners, they talk about, you know, that, you know, we are normalizing gambling. Well, gambling is normal for you know, millions of people in this country. And I sometimes think that that gets lost in all the kind of, um, you know, the, the air war and the debates that go on around this subject. But isn't, isn't, the, isn't the term problem gambling a problem, if you, if you pardon the expression, in itself, in, insofar as it, it's suggesting that there are people who are a problem to the industry rather than you know, trying to empathetically recognise that gambling addiction is a, a, an illness that, that everybody has a responsibility, that society has a responsibility to, to treat. And we, we surely, as a, a racing industry and, and, and as a betting industry, surely don't want to be at right angles to that societal responsibility. Definitely not. I mean, look, if you compare it with alcohol, you know, what does alcohol do um, in terms of the societal problems associated with um, alcohol? They, they just leave it at the door of the NHS. That is yeah, but we don't, we, don't, we, don't call, we don't call people with an alcohol addiction problem drinkers, do we? It denigrates them in, in, insofar as it defines them by, a, by a, a medical or a clinical addiction. Well, problem gambling, and this is, uh, you know, there is a, a danger. We're kind of doing it a little bit here that we're conflating... Uh, two quite distinct things, really. So the Daily Mail will talk about problem gambling figures and it will uh, equate that as addicts. And actually, we're talking about different things. So within the kind of spectrum of problem gambling, and we're talking about problematic uh, behaviour, but there is a scale and a spectrum within that. So within that 0.3%, there is um, a minority amongst that about what the NHS would call uh, disordered gamblers, um, so people with compulsive, uh, serious addictions. That's not 0.3%. It's a far, far smaller number. But that really serious problems that a very, very small number of people can and do have with it. Of course, we've got to take that absolutely seriously. That's why we, you know, increased our commitment in funding research, education, and treatment from the big operators. You know, going up to a hundred million pounds uh, by. 
uh, in the next couple of years. You know, so I think the industry has stepped up. This is something that the government are undoubtedly looking at, but we mustn't conflate two things. There is problem gambling is is about um, people who've have got problematic behaviour around their betting. In its most extreme examples, and for a minority of those people, it can mean obsessive compulsive addiction, and that has an awful impact on th- those individuals and their families. You know, and we've got to um, continue to do more uh, to help those people, but pr- to prevent those problems in the first place. It's why, as well as you know, funding treatment, you know, the stuff we're doing with organisations like YGAM around educating young people, I think is really critical too. Mike, I just want to talk about this issue of compulsion. If it's a generally received wisdom, and you may reject this notion, but it's a generally accepted wisdom that, that horse racing particularly and sports betting in general is a relatively cerebral activity compared to casino online gaming, is it not reasonable then for horse racing and other sports to ask the betting firms to have separate wallets for customers so that stringency of checks does not apply equally across all your gambling well the truth is i mean i think we've uh, you know racing and all of us we've got there's a danger that we are kind of complacent around all of that so i think this idea that you know i mean some forms of gambling are potentially riskier for certain cohorts and individuals than others. That is true, but horse racing is still huge in terms of its volume, in terms of betting in this country. So a problem gambler normally will use actually a number of products. Um, they will bet on, you know, whether it's national lottery products or uh, sports betting, including racing or you know online casino uh, gaming. So they use multiple products. So it isn't the case of a problem gambler is only is only using that particular product. And because the volume of horse race betting is so large, by definition, even if you know percentages of problem gambling are quite small, that's that can be a significant number of people around horse racing. So I think there's a I think we've got to guard against complacency there. You know, there will be of those 0.3% of people who are problem gamblers, you know, a significant number will be betting on horses. So I think the idea that you can kind of one can appeal off or a slightly naive romantic view that you know betting on horses is this you know, is, is a sort of gentleman's club full of highly skilled individuals, you know, and it's completely different to all forms of other forms of gambling. It's just, I mean, it's just not true and is a bit daft, to be honest. But doesn't the sport need to present itself in a way that is distinct from other, other, other forms of gambling? Doesn't, have it, doesn't it have a responsibility to do that in order to convince the government and to convince those people who, who want to sort of to ban dangerous forms of gambling that it is different that it is a test of skill and the way that it's presented the way how many races there are the repetition of betting opportunities is isn't that surely something that feeds into that it, it's just not i think it's just something that is massively overstated by the industry look the industry is perfectly racing is perfectly within its rights to to have individual conversations i'm sure they are i know they are with with government about uh, its sport but the idea that that racing, uh, horse racing, betting can kind of get a free pass when it comes to safer gambling, you know, I don't think is is the case. Um, 
And, I, and actually, I think as, as well as obviously the representations that racing will make on behalf of its own industry, I do think it is in the interest of racing to work much more collaboratively with betting. They have to recognise, and, and I know that you know the leadership of the BHA certainly do, um, that there is a symbiotic relationship between betting and horse racing. Um, we've all got a lot together um, at stake in this review and that we are better working together, um, whether it's around you know, proactive issues around safer gambling or whether it's, it's in raising concerns about potential future restrictions as well. A betting and Gaming Council Chief Executive Michael Duggar. My thanks to him. We're off to Hong Kong now to join Jim McGrath. Nick, we all know Hong Kong doesn't have any jumps racing, but there's something of the National Hunt spirit in the jockey's room at Sha Tin if news from that inner sanctum is indeed accurate. For I hear that Zach Pert and his planning have come back to the saddle a week today. That's Wednesday, January the 12th, which is only 31 days after he took a shocking fall at Sha Tin on International Race Day last month. Purton suffered the horror fall from Lucky Patch in a four-horse pile-up on the home turn in the Hong Kong Sprint. That no jockey was killed was a miracle, but sadly two horses had to be put down as a result of their injuries. For the record, Purton smashed his wrist, he broke his nose and he suffered fractured ribs as well as breaking his foot. There's little doubt he's pushing the boundaries to try to get back from that vast catalogue of injuries so quickly. But the 38-year-old made a point of going public this week with his plan for the early comeback. There's no way Zach wants the rumour mongers to start putting it about that he should be maybe resting, feet up, contemplating retirement. Certainly not after such a wonderfully successful riding career that has made him a multi-millionaire and one of the richest jockeys in modern times. And that's in any currency you care to suggest. No, Zach is desperate to get back, eager to renew rivalry with Marrera, all in the knowledge that the Magic Man has been firing in winners, piling on the pressure with every meeting. He's ridden a total of 14 winners in the six race days since Purton was in the pile-up. Marrera has an attractive book of eight rides on today's nine-race card at Happy Valley. He's now four ahead of Zach. He leads the championship 53-49. to 49. The Magic Man's best ride is Astrologer for Dougie White in the six-furlong sprint for Class 3. Astrologer made an early impact, winning at the Valley at odds of 133-1 to 1 on only his second local start. So race six, number three, Astrologer. Take him in multiples with number six, a a smile like yours, and number four stock legend. The feature race is the Group 3 January Cup over nine furlongs. Kaying Star runs, which means five of the nine runners are out of the handicap. One who just scrapes into it, though, is the classy ex-Brazilian Butterfield, who has only a very lightweight to carry for Matthew Poon. So race four, number four Butterfield, taking him in a tote swinger with one Kaying Star and three Fast, most furious. It could be a tricky race. That's all on the Hong Kong Beat this week. I'll have more for you next week when we'll see if Zach Purton actually does make his comeback on schedule. Well, thanks to Jim and to all my guests today. Jane Mangan has a tip for you. Yes, the 145 at Fast Last is a handicap hurdle and I'm going to go with sabbatical. Uh, Evan and Isabel Williams. Isabel Williams has impressed me very much in the saddle and I think she'd get ahead in front of Kirsty off sabbatical today, 145. All right, Jane, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Wednesday, January the 5th, and we will see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.